So tonight we will be studying the new covenant. So the covenant of consummation is what many will refer to this, this covenant. And so we've been studying for the last seven weeks biblical theology. And so in that time we've gone basically from the garden to now Christ. And we're going to see in the upper room as he inaugurates the covenant. And so our study has spanned really the, the entirety of Scripture. And what we've looked at is, is we, we were studying biblical theology. We're trying to look at kind of that theme of Scripture, the grand narrative, the storyline of Scripture. We've been looking at the covenant specifically as that framework of God establishing his relationship with humanity as he's restoring a broken creation, a broken humanity. And so we've been looking at that covenantal relationship, and that brings us tonight again to the new covenant, to, to that final covenantal act of God that's inaugurated through the work of Jesus Christ. And so tonight we will be starting at Jeremiah 31. We could be all over the place tonight. The New Testament is, is just, it, it's got new covenant language all over it. And so even when it doesn't use the word covenant, it, it it is referring back to the things of old quite often. And so we could look at many books of the New Testament tonight looking at the New Covenant. We could, we could have spent another seven weeks or more just looking at this. So tonight we're going to look at two primary texts, Jeremiah 31, and then we're going to look at Luke 22. We're going to look at, at the Lord's Supper. We're going to look at that, uh, that time that Jesus spends with his disciples in the upper room. But we'll be starting in Jeremiah 31 before we make our way to the, the book of Luke. But as the Old Testament closed, we're really left almost kind of scratching our head. Because God's made all these amazing promises to his people. And he's done these spectacular works of salvation for Israel. But as the Old Testament closes, they don't possess the land. There's no Davidic king on the throne. They've, they've been exiled. And, and though many of them have returned, they're not a nation. They're, they're not a true nation as of what they were called to be. They don't have a great name, and they haven't been a blessing to the world either. And so we're looking at all these promises that Israel has, has been given, and as the Old Testament closes, we're, we're left scratching our head, wondering what God is going to do, because it doesn't look good for Israel. And again, along the way, we've seen the human party continue to fail. The human party of the covenant has continued to fail along the way. And so we're asking, we're asking if things are any better than when God had first made that promise in Genesis 3.15. Have we really come anywhere since God promised that one was going to overturn the curse and crush Satan's head? And we're still looking for that one. But as the Old Testament ends, we have hope. Because interspersed with all these judgment texts, all these promises of, of exile and, and Israel being crushed because of their sin... It's interspersed with hope. And so throughout the prophets, you see this hope of a greater day. You see this hope for what Jeremiah calls a new covenant. And you'll see Ezekiel refer to it. You'll see Isaiah refer to it, Zechariah. You'll see other minor prophets and the major prophets referring to this great day to come. And so amidst the crushing that they will receive by the hands of Babylon and the, the north will be crushed by Assyria, though these things are coming upon them and even while these prophets are prophesying these events, it's interspersed with the hope of the new covenant. And that's where we are in Jeremiah. So if you will turn with me to Jeremiah 31, 31. Jeremiah had been preaching judgment throughout the book. He'd been preaching that Israel will be ruined because of their sin due to their failure to return to the God of the covenant. And so again, even as, as Jeremiah's 
prophecy in many ways is sealing Israel's fate of destruction, we're given this beautiful hope in Jeremiah 31. Some people even believe that, that Jeremiah 31 really stands at the, as the center of this book, and, and that in many ways it's almost like an acrostic uh, where things are pointing to this central passage of the book, and that this is one of the major purposes of the book of Jeremiah. So starting in verse 31, Jeremiah writes, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. God is going to make a new covenant covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah so God's about to do something new God is about to act there will be another covenant something unlike what we've seen before yet it will rest upon those promises it will build upon what God has already done And so God has not given up on Israel. So even amidst these judgment texts of Jeremiah, and some of them are quite shocking, as Brian's already been preaching through Jeremiah, we've seen some of that harsh language that Jeremiah uses. Even amidst that, there's this hope that God has not given up on his covenantal people. And so Jeremiah is pointing us to the dawning of a new day, this new covenant as it's referred to. And he goes on in verse 32, he says that it's not like the covenant. So it's not like the other covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So referring back to that Mosaic covenant, he says it's not like that covenant, and he refers to it as my covenant that they broke. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord. So it will be unlike that covenant that God made at Sinai, he refers to it as the covenant that they broke. And so under the Mosaic law, we had seen that the people had committed themselves to this covenant. The people and God, in that, in that covenantal inauguration ceremony, both of the parties had sprinkled the blood upon themselves. The, the blood had been sprinkled upon the altar and upon the people of Israel. Unlike the Abrahamic covenant, where it is only God that passes through the two uh, sides of the dead animals, both parties affirmed this covenant. And along the way, we see their continual failure in this covenant. So time after time, Israel will renew the covenant even. So throughout their history, they continually renew their covenant. Even in the book of Jeremiah, they attempt to renew the covenant, and then immediately afterwards, they fail. And so we see this pattern of renewal and failure, and that's where we are here, waiting that day of a better covenant, of this new covenant that's going to happen. So one thing that Israel really reminds us of humanity, all people, is our absolute inability to fulfill the terms of the covenant on our own. We have an absolute inability to have righteousness based upon the law in and of itself. We cannot live up to God's standards. And God had been teaching Israel this along the way. It's exactly what one of the main purposes of the law was to point to the finished work of Christ that was to come and point to Israel's inability to be obedient to this law, to fulfill their side of the covenant. And Israel had been unfaithful to this covenant. He even refers to this relationship as though he is a husband to them. And we see this in the book of Hosea. Hosea teaches us a very vivid picture of Israel's unfaithfulness when Hosea is told to marry a prostitute. And his marriage will depict Israel 
and God's relationship. Whereas Israel acts like the prostitute, and it's God that is the faithful husband to a wayward wife, Israel. And so Hosea paints this picture of Israel's unfaithfulness so vividly that they are covenant breakers, that they have been unfaithful to the God of the covenant. Because it was God who was to be their husband. And that's exactly what Jeremiah is referring to here. And he goes on in, in verse 33, he continues, For this is the covenant that I will make, speaking of the new covenant, with the house of Israel, after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. God will put his law within our hearts, within their hearts, is what he's saying. Ezekiel describes the new covenant as God removing our hard hearts of stone and washing us by his spirit and giving us hearts of flesh. So Ezekiel refers to the new covenant as one where we're given new hearts. And Jeremiah is saying that those new hearts are going to have the law written on them. Those new hearts will have the law of God written upon them rather than the external law of God that they received in those Ten Commandments. Because the law in and of itself was never meant to change hearts. It wasn't going to be the law that was going to change their hearts. It was always going to be God. All along it was going to be God that was going to change their hearts. And so Jeremiah is pointing us again to that reality. And that's the problem that we have with the law is that even many Christians become legalistic with the law and they they feel like well if these people would just clean themselves up they would fix things if we could just get them to be obedient to the ten commandments or if we could just get our society to do this or that but that's not our problem we need new hearts we need a heart transplant and that's what jeremiah is pointing us to is that we need an entirely new heart and so the new covenant is directing us to this reality Jeremiah's prophecy is directing us to these truths as we're awaiting these new hearts. And again, we see that covenantal language as in the end of verse 33, he says, And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. That's that covenantal language as God has established relationship with us. And so we've seen that throughout the covenants as God is working to cause us to, to draw us back to himself, that we would be his people. And ever since we left that garden, that is exactly what God has been doing as he establishes his relationship with a lost humanity, and he does it through Israel, is he's working to make a people unto himself. And that's exactly what Jeremiah is saying, that this new covenant will be the fulfillment of these realities, is that we will be the people of God. And then he goes on in verse 34, he says, And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. No longer will they need to teach one another under this covenant. Now this is quite often misunderstood is that in the New Testament church that we no longer need teaching. And that's not what Jeremiah is getting at here. What he's getting at is throughout Israel's history, we see these patterns of disobedience, these patterns of rebellion, yet there's always a remnant along the way. People like Jeremiah, the prophets of old, the the faithful remnant, they're constantly calling the people back to God, calling them to know their God. And that's what Jeremiah is referring to here is that these prophets were calling the covenantal community to return back to God. But under the new covenant, 
all members of the new covenant will know God. All of us will know God that are in this new covenant community. Because entrance into the new covenant is through being born again, is through having a new heart, is through being regenerate. And that's why we believe in regenerate church membership. That the only person that should be a church member is one that knows God. And that if one does not know God, then we need to preach the gospel to them. And if they're living unfaithfully, then ultimately, after warning and pleading and teaching the gospel to that person to know God, they would ultimately face church discipline, that they would be out of the covenantal community with the hopes that we would actually draw them in, in truth. But what Jeremiah is pointing to is this day when the community of God, the covenantal community, would all know him. And not only will we know him, but we'll be forgiven by him. So as we end verse 34, Jeremiah writes, For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So we're waiting this day, it will be a day of forgiveness. A day when we'll be washed of our sins. The law and the sacrificial system, it meticulously taught Israel about their sin. It meticulously taught them about the cost of their sin. Because they were constantly doing sacrifices. They were constantly killing animals. It would have been a bloody mess. It would have been something that would have been a constant reminder. And I think that's hard for us to grasp because we don't do that. We don't kill animals and sacrifice them. But this sacrificial system would have very meticulously taught them about the cost of sin. Israel, through the law, had been taught about sin, about God's righteousness and God's holy character but jeremiah is pointing us to the day where the once for all sacrifice will come the all-sufficient sacrifice is coming because that's what they're waiting for every year at that day of atonement they would have been longing for that day that last day of atonement and ultimately the sacrifices didn't actually wash their sins they were pointing forward to the sacrifice that would. I, I, I like the way that Bruce Ware describes it. He describes it as though one is ma- using a credit card and making payments. So tonight, I could leave here and go to the nicest restaurant in Louisville. And at the end of the night, I could swipe my card and they're going to bring me back a receipt. And I'm going to sign that receipt saying that I'm pledging to, to pay for this in the future. Ultimately, I'm authorizing these charges and one day this will be paid for. But I didn't actually pay for that meal yet. I'm waiting for that bill to come when I will actually make payment. And I could choose not to make payment. And they're going to try and hunt me down and find me and force me to make payment. But the reality is I'm not actually making payment when I swipe that card. And so what Bruce Ware describes this as is he likens that to them in the Old Testament sacrificial system. Because all of these sacrifices that were made were not sufficient. They were pointing forward to Christ's all-sufficient sacrifice, the one that actually could pay that debt, the one that actually will pay that bill. And so those sacrifices are just types pointing forward to that once-for-all sacrifice when the bill is actually paid for. And that's exactly what the sacrificial system is intended us to do, intended for us. It's intended for us to long for more. It's intended to leave us waiting and wanting and desiring more, desiring that day that Jeremiah promises here when God will forgive their iniquity and that he will remember our sins no more. And that's what we're left waiting for. And as the Old Testament closes, that's what we're longing for as we see the failure of Israel, as we see that the promises have 
have not been fulfilled. As we leave the Old Testament, again, we leave almost disappointed but hopeful. Hopeful in the God of the covenant. Hopeful in the one who has been faithful to his promises. And so with that in mind, let's turn to the gospel according to Luke. We'll start in chapter 1. I want to look at a couple texts before we get to chapter 22. We'll start in verse 32 of chapter 1. As we open the, the text of the New Testament, what I want to show is that the work of Christ is rooted in God's redemptive purposes in the Old Testament. As we've been watching, as we've been watching the covenants unfold, what God does on the cross is a new thing, but it's a thing of old. And so as we see this tension that, yes, there's a new covenant, and it's not like the one of old, yet it rests squarely upon the things of old. It rests squarely upon the promises of God given to, to Abraham, given to David, given throughout the Old Testament. So someone will read Luke 1, verses 32 and verse 33. I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And this is what I have prayed for you. I'm sorry, Luke 1, 32 and 33. Sorry, sorry. Luke, yeah, Luke 1. Yeah. Yep, Luke 1, 32. 32 and 33. Thanks, Garrett. Put you on the spot. All right, so this is the angel Gabriel foretelling the birth of Jesus to Mary. And as he comes to tell her about the Christ child, what are we reminded of? He's going to be king from who? Whom? His father David. Who else is likened there? Who else is referenced? Jacob, the recipient of the promises to whom? Abraham, that's right. So the promises to Abraham continue to his seed. And so already here, as the angel Gabriel is coming to Mary, we see that this new thing will be rooted in the things of old, that, that this Christ child will reign on the throne of David, and that he'll reign over the house of Jacob, the house of Abraham. And then as we go on to Luke 1, verse 54, we see Mary's praise of God. And so if someone will read 54 and 55, this is how Mary responds. So does Mary understand God's covenantal relationship from of old? She seems to. She seems to. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. She understands the promises. She understands that this is that seed. This is that one. And even as we're not even out of chapter one yet, we see another reference to God's covenantal acts of old in Zechariah's prophecy. So if someone, actually this one I will read, we'll start in verse 67, Zechariah's prophecy. 
And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, this is in response to John the Baptist and his birth. He says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. He has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. So again, we're brought back to David. Does anyone remember the word play used in 2 Samuel 7? A little refresher there. God uses a word play with David concerning what word in verse 69? The house. Yeah, the house. That's correct. David says, I will build you a house. And then God comes back and tells David, no, it will be God building this house, the house of David. An everlasting throne will come through David. And so even as Zechariah, in this spirit-filled prophecy, is prophesying, he's referencing God's redemptive act through David. So again, we're seeing that here is that, that, that these three events already we see with Gabriel, Mary, and Zechariah, they're all reminding us of the things of old. They're all pointing back to the Old Testament promises that what is happening in Christ is a fulfillment of the things of old. And then in verse 70 he goes on and, and it says, and as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. So again, this idea that from of old, all of these things from of old are pointing to what's happening now. All of these things from of old are signs pointing forward to what Christ is about to do in his life, in his ministry, in his death and resurrection. They're signposts. When I was 12, my dad took me backpacking for the first time. My dad really loved backpacking. He had done it a lot in college and as a young adult before he had had children. And so by the time I got to the age of 12, he decided it was time to, to take me backpacking. And so he, he was very good at map reading and planning. And so he planned out the whole trip. We were going to have a four-day uh, backpacking experience. And he planned out each day so that progressively we would hike more every day. And so the reason why he did that is because you have to get acclimated to the elevation change and your muscles have to get acclimated to wearing the pack on you and just hiking more than you've probably walked before. And so the first day we just did about seven miles. It, it wasn't too bad. We left in the afternoon and got to our little camp uh, or in the early evening time, set up our tent. And I thought backpacking's not that hard. You know, we had a good time and I thought it was great. The next day, my dad had planned for 12 miles, so it's starting to get a little more difficult, um, but it was very enjoyable. We went to a really nice alpine lake. We were the only two people there, and so it was, it was pretty neat. So by day three, we did 15 miles, and uh, by day three, I'm telling my dad I didn't think I'd walked 15 miles before in my life, and so I was pretty proud of myself at 12 years old, uh, but the last day, my dad had planned to do 18 miles. And so I was a little concerned about doing 18 miles, and my dad explained to me that usually the last day it's okay because, one, you're going downhill more so because you're, you're losing that elevation you've gained, and also you're excited to be home. And so you really want to go home, so you have this added motivation of, of going home. And so we're hiking. We're pretty far into the day at this point. It's the afternoon, and we had been talking for a while, and my dad starts to think that we're not where we should be according to the map. And so he's getting a little concerned, and I could tell that he's getting nervous. And it, at 12 years old, I think he's trying to hide the information from me that we're lost. And so finally, we keep going, and we find this, this nice couple that's backpacking, and they're having lunch. And my dad goes up to him and says, do you know where we are? And so they sit down together, and they, they look at the map, and they tell my dad where we are. And my dad realizes that we're three and a half miles off the trail. 
And so three and a half miles doesn't sound bad, but when you go three and a half miles in one direction, you have to walk back. So now we just lost seven miles. So uh, even at 12, I can do basic math. And I realize that we got about 25 miles now to get home tonight. And it's already late in the afternoon. Uh, not 25 miles left, but that was going to be our total day by the end of it. And so I can tell, again, my dad's getting more concerned now because it's late in the afternoon. And so we turn around and, and we start hiking back, back to the trail. And the whole time, me and my dad are just complaining about the fact that surely there was no sign. And so we're complaining about the, the Forest Service and how the, the Park Service should make sure they put signs out and that, you know, people could get lost and people could even die because there's not signs. And so we're going on and on about this sign and how surely we, we didn't miss it. We get back to the trail and it's right in the middle of the trail. We missed the sign. We missed the sign and it had a great cost to it, missing that sign. Because we kept going and by about mile 22, uh, maybe a couple miles before then, we had stopped taking breaks. Because every time we took a break, we didn't want to get back up, we realized. So we just stopped taking breaks. And by the time we got to about mile 22, my dad was done. He had taken, he was carrying a lot more weight than me. I was 12 years old, so he, ca he carried a lot more weight on his backpack than me. And he just sat down and he couldn't get back up. And so he told me to put the tent together. And we only had like a little bit of tuna left because we didn't have enough food for a fifth day. And so I fed my dad what tuna we had left. And uh, we just camped out there only about three miles from our car. And, and so missing that sign had great consequences. Our family was waiting for us to come back. I mean, we were there an extra day. Think how stressed you would be if uh, your husband and your son w was missing for an entire day in, in the wilderness. And so we go back the next day, and, uh, you know, we tell our story, and, you know, we're, we're uh, a little embarrassed about getting lost. But missing the signs have a great consequence and so what Zechariah is pointing to is all of these things of old all of these things in the past these covenants what God has been doing they're signposts they're pointing to to what's about to happen and as Jesus points out many will miss it many will miss these things like me and my father missed that sign but missing these things will be of eternal consequence so Zechariah again is rooting these things in in old as signposts pointing forward to what's to come and so that takes us forward, and then you go to Luke 3. Luke chooses to put his genealogy later in the text than Matthew. In his genealogy, he goes all the way back to Adam. We go from Jesus to Adam, and in verse 38, Luke writes, The son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, and what does he say? the son of God, the son of God. So Luke is redirecting our attention all the way back to creation, all the way back to Adam. He's showing that Jesus' genealogy, yes, it traces through Abraham. It traces through David, even Noah, but it goes farther back than that. Our new covenantal head is here. And he's not just the son of David, but he's the son of God. And we're reminded of that. The new and better Adam has come. And what's interesting in the way that Luke chooses to frame his genealogy, he frames it with a testing. Immediately after the genealogy, Jesus is tempted in the wilderness. And we're familiar with that text. Where Adam failed, where Israel failed, Jesus will succeed. He will live by the word of God, unlike Adam who rejected the word of God 
and followed Satan's word. So Jesus will be faithful in his wilderness testing. Jesus, the new and better Adam, the son of God, the one in fulfillment of these prophecies, as Zechariah has prophesied, as Mary has pointed to, as Gabriel has told us, this one is here. We've been waiting for the seed. We've been waiting throughout the text as we've seen David fail and Solomon fail, Noah fail. All of these covenantal heads had failed along the way, and now Jesus is tested in the wilderness and he succeeds. And he is found righteous. He is the one that will fulfill the law fully. He will be obedient at every point of the law. And that brings us to Luke 22. Again, there's so much more that we can look at to get us here, but I think that Luke 22 is very helpful to our studies. We look at the inauguration, the new covenant, and like I said, we can look at many places But Jesus shows himself to be the fulfillment of the Passover here. The Passover of old. And so we're reminded of the great events of the Exodus as Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper. As he draws his closest disciples up to that upper room and he has a meal with them. And so Luke 22 starting in verse 14. Luke 22 starting in verse 14. And when the hour came, he reclined at the table, and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. So we're reminded of the great events of the Exodus. Because Jesus is about to use the Passover meal to point to his inauguration of the new covenant. He's showing us in verse 16 that the kingdom of God is imminent, that the kingdom of God is at hand. And so now the Passover will be used to point to events much greater than itself, where that Passover lamb was sacrificed on behalf of Israel, Jesus Christ will be that greater Passover lamb. He will be the one that that comes in fulfillment of that Passover sacrifice. The author of Hebrews in chapter 10, he describes all of these Old Testament things such as this as types as shadows of the good things to come and then he goes on to say which are the true form of the old testament realities so the passover in the old testament is a shadow of what jesus is about to do it's a type of what jesus is about to do and so jesus's act is 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 in a sense an escalation of god's salvation in the old testament it's a new and better exodus it goes beyond what god did in his redemptive events in the exodus And Jesus is showing that the kingdom is at hand, that the long-awaited fulfillment of the Davidic covenant is now at hand. This is what we've been waiting for. That Passover sacrifice is finally here. And he goes on in verse 17, and he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes again that kingdom language and he goes on and he took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and gave it to them saying this is my body which is given for you do this in remembrance of me 
So Abraham had pointed us forward to this day when God would ultimately be sacrificed on our behalf. If you remember when we studied the covenant of Abraham, it is only God who passes between the animals that are split into. It is God who acts as the covenantal representative who says, when this covenant is broken, I will take the curses upon myself. And that's what we are about to see. That is what we will see in the Passover, that it will be God that takes the covenantal curses upon himself. And it points to God's substitutionary atonement. Because he says, this body, in verse 19, this body which is given up for you. For you. Matthew says, for the many. But again, this idea that, that God, in our place, as our substitute, is taking upon himself the covenantal curses. That God is taking upon himself what we deserved. That our new covenantal head will face the penalties of the garden on our behalf, the penalty of death, of the curse that Adam had caused. Jesus will now undo in our place. And so again, that, that beautiful reality of substitutionary atonement. And again, and now it is his blood sealing this covenant. As we saw in the Old Testament, they would ratify their covenants through blood. We saw it with Abraham. We saw it in the Mosaic Covenant. And so again, we see it now once again, but it will be Christ's blood. All of these realities were pointing to this covenant, the inauguration of this covenant when Jesus' blood would be what inaugurates the covenant. Again, in Exodus 24, we saw them sprinkle the blood upon the altar and upon the people. And ultimately, we need to be washed by Jesus' blood. That's what we've been waiting for is that cleansing from his blood. And he says, do this in remembrance of me. This act is so crucial to the Christian faith that he commands us to continually reenact it as a covenantal sign, as a reminder of his covenant with us. Just like in the Old Testament, we saw reminders of God's grace as he gave Noah the rainbow or as he gave Abraham circumcision. We see another covenantal sign that, that we would do this in remembrance of him, that we would continually reenact this act of Christ. Though it was a once-for-all act, we do it in remembrance, is how he describes it. I love how J.C. Ryle describes this act of remembrance. He states that the bread and the wine were intended to preach Christ crucified as our substitute. So he recognizes that substitutionary nature of this sacrifice, and he says that the elements are to preach that message. And then he goes on to say they were a visible sermon. So the elements are a visible sermon appealing to the believer's senses. So again, as we're crunching on that bread, as we're tasting of that wine, it's appealing to our senses and teaching the foundation truth of the gospel. So every time that we partake in the Lord's table, we're partaking in the gospel. We're being reminded of the gospel, and even our senses should cause us to think upon these things. And Ryle goes on to say that Christ's death on the cross is the life of man's soul. And so every week that, that we celebrate that, every time we crunch on the elements, every time that we drink of it, we should be remembering of the gospel truths of Christ's sacrifice, of this new covenant, this better covenant that Christ has now inaugurated. And if you remember in Exodus, there's that verse when the leaders go up on the mountain and they dine with God. Just the leaders, just the representatives of Israel go up there. But in the new covenant, 
all new covenant members are called to the table. We see, in a sense, a, a greater escalation, a greater fulfillment of what God did in the Exodus. That now, Christ calls us all to take a seat at his table. He pulls out a chair for us, and he says, sit at my table and eat my body, eat my flesh, and drink my blood, and remember what I did for you. And so this new covenantal sign causes us to remember what he has done for this new covenant community, the church, ultimately. And these beautiful realities that we see in the gospel. And so in the upper room, we see Jesus demonstrate what he's about to do. He's giving us a picture, a glimpse at what he's about to do on the cross. And he's saying, don't forget this. Continue to remember this. And so before his all-important passion, before his, his death on the cross, he pulls them up to the upper room and he teaches them about the new covenant. He teaches them exactly what he's going to do. And that's how important this text is as it leads into that passion narrative, as it leads into Calvary. Jesus is inaugurating, he's beginning to inaugurate that new covenant, a new age has come. And so in some sense, as we're in the upper room, the storyline of Scripture is about to wrap up. The storyline of Scripture is about to be fulfilled. We're about to wrap up our narrative. The consummation is, is at hand right now. The consummation is beginning. And everything has pointed to this. From when we left the garden to Noah, to Abraham, to David, and then Moses, Moses before David, obviously. All of these things have been pointing to this day. Jeremiah telling us this day is coming. This covenant is coming, and it will be a new covenant. And you will be my people, and I will be your God. And that is the storyline of Scripture. That is, that is the fulfillment of all of these things, all of the promises of God. Everything that God is doing is leading to the act of Christ on the cross, that all-important act of his death in our place. So when we look at the, the, the system of atonement that God had given them, the priesthood, as we look at every part of the Old Testament, these things were pointing to this great act. And so as we close out our study I want to remind us of a couple of the applications that we talked about that first week. Why is biblical theology important? That's kind of what I want to ask, and then I want to ask a couple questions. Because I want to apply kind of what we've learned. So the first reason that I gave, I'm going to repeat the, the reasons I gave that first week, is that biblical theology, why it's important, the first thing I, I had mentioned was that it helps us to clarify the Bible's main purpose. So biblical theology helps us to clarify the Bible's main purpose. Why would that be important to us? I want to talk about some of these applications together. Why would that be important that we know the Bible's main purpose? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And it helps us to make sense of the story along the way. I'm sorry? Yeah. Yep, and it helps us to fit it all together then. 
So now once we understand that story, we can fit it together easier. Because the Old Testament can be difficult to read. We can acknowledge that, right? The Old Testament can be difficult for the, the Christian to understand how to apply, how to use. Biblical theology helps us to make sense of the storyline and helps us to make sense specifically of the Old Testament, but all of Scripture. Um, and so then we can take a difficult book and understand it better. We can take a book like Leviticus and see what are the themes of Leviticus. How does that work into the storyline of it? We see things like atonement in Leviticus. We see things like the priesthood. We see things like in the narratives, man's inability to fulfill the law, just like you see with Nadab and Abihu. We see law after law and then failure once again. So then you take a difficult book like Leviticus and you make sense of it in light of the storyline. Yeah. The second reason I gave for why biblical theology is important is that it protects us from false gospels. Why would it do that? That's how you get led astray. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So a false gospel is a false narrative. If you look at false gospels, you'll see that they're false narratives. They miss the storyline of scripture. So they make the storyline about something else. So a popular one would be the prosperity gospel. They make the storyline, and every time they read the Bible, they look at ways that maybe God needs to bless us materially and in, in ways like that, rather than getting the storyline correct. And so when you see false gospels, they're missing the narrative. They're missing the main purpose of Scripture. So biblical theology helps guard and protect the church. It helps keep us on track, in a sense. It protects us from missing the narrative purpose of the Scriptures. The next uh, reason why I gave was that it helps us to understand and teach the, the Bible the way Jesus did. So I argued that first week that this is how Jesus teaches the Bible, is that he recognizes that all things pointed to him. And, and he says that, and even on the Emmaus Road, he uses the Old Testament to point to himself and to reveal who he is by those truths. And so again, it helps us to teach and understand the Bible better. The next reason I gave was that biblical theology helps us to counsel better. Counsel ourselves and counsel others. Why would that be? That one's maybe a little more difficult. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So the heart is wicked. And we've seen that as we've studied biblical theology. You see this continual theme of man's inability, of humanity's sinful hearts. And so what Becky's saying, you know, the reality of that is, is when you know biblical theology, you can, you can insert that person or yourself into that narrative. You recognize who you are in light of what God has done. You recognize who you are in light of the fall, in light of, of all the gospel truths, and it helps you to counsel better because you understand the narrative. You understand the storyline and understand where we are in that storyline. So now you can apply the word of God more effectively to someone when you know where they are in that storyline. The last reason I gave why biblical theology is important is that it, it aids in evangelism. Again, why, so why would it aid in evangelism? Absolutely. 
Absolutely. So, yeah, both of those are great because at the end of the day, everyone who's not a believer believes in, in a sense, a false gospel, believes in a false narrative. And so we're teaching the true narrative, the narrative of Scripture, of God's redemption. And specifically the Old Testament with with, uh, Mark's answer is that that is a lot of hang-ups for people. And so when you can understand the storyline, you can now understand the gospel. And again, inserting that person into the gospel narrative, teaching them about man's inability, man's sinfulness, and all of those things. And it's important to know scripture when you witness, know things like the Roman road and things like that. But it can make for a difficult presentation of the gospel when you can't dynamically preach the gospel to someone. And so what I mean by that is, is if all you can do is, is just cite scripture, it makes it a lot more difficult, though it's a great starting point, to be able to witness to someone. Because when you know the narrative, when you know the storyline, how it all fits together, it's a lot easier to now insert that person into the narrative again and be able to share the gospel and apply the gospel to them. And so those things are very helpful, gospel tracts and different things like that. But again, knowing biblical theology, knowing the narrative and the storyline of Scripture helps you be more effective in applying the gospel to people's lives. Great. All right, any other questions or comments before we close? All right, we'll close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your grace and mercy that you've put on display through making a people unto yourself, ultimately the people of God in your church. And we just thank you for what you've done through establishing your relationship with a lost humanity, specifically through the covenants as we've been studying. I just pray that, that this study would, would be helpful to those in the church and that it would, one, glorify you, and two, be applied in our lives, Lord, that we would know your word better and that we would now apply it not only to ourselves but to others and that we would apply your narrative, understand it, and be able to teach it better. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.